Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned. We are going to switch it up this week because I am very excited to announce that Chuck's book is now officially released as of Wednesday, September the 8th. Congratulations, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's very exciting. So the day that this gets released, I believe, is the release date of your your newest book called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer transportation for a strong town. And I just have to tell you, I've gone through several chapters, not in order, (laughs) but several chapters, and it is just a fantastic read. It's centered around our transportation systems and conventional planning approaches to transportation planning and why, why it's failing to make our communities vital and safe and livable and what we can do about it. So it's a fantastic read, and I I encourage anybody who is listening to this to go out and read it. So Chuck, we are going to take this week's episode to talk about one of the chapters. Um, I really wanted to talk about chapter five, Great Streets. There's a lot about this particular chapter that resonated with me, not just as a planner, but as a citizen living in a city with both what I would consider to be great streets and not so great streets, what you might call a strode. So, you know, so many cities have these remnants of formerly great streets, and they were streets that were originally designed to be wealth generators, to support support public space and public activity and have unfortunately degraded by later generations in favor of free flow of cars so that people could get basically out of the city as quickly as possible. In my view, our generation, your generation, generations to follow are really tasked with undoing this degradation so that our communities can once again have great streets. So Chuck, for listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with strong towns and the strong towns approach or philosophy to transportation, maybe we can start by talking a bit about what makes a great street and why an emphasis on great streets is more important than an emphasis on, say, moving traffic quickly. Right. Thank you. And thanks for doing this, too. Um, I, I love when my friends read the book because you know, people, smart people like you have a lot of, of reaction to it that is is fun for me and, and insightful for me. So thank you. It, I, I think the way to talk about streets is this kind of deeply subversive way that I've defined streets and roads in contrast with each other. Uh, a road is an investment for moving people at speed or moving vehicles at speed ac- across distance. It's, con- it's a connection between two places. And a street is actually the platform. It's the structure for building a place. And we talk about it in the book as like a platform for building wealth. And it's it's interesting because people have pushed back on that over the years and be like, why does it have to be about wealth? And and the reason that you know we talk in those ways is because if you listen to like Congress today debate multi-billion dollar investments in transportation, it's always tied to economic development. We're going to make these investments. It's going to create growth. It's going to create economy. And 
talking about wealth building is really localizing that. When we build wealth in a neighborhood, what it means is to build a place that people want to be. It means to build a place where people prosper, where people want to invest, where people want to live, where people want to want to buy that investment, right? Where people want to be part of that neighborhood. And so by contrasting this idea of a, of a road and a street, we really like focus on what the purpose of each is. If you're about moving vehicles very quickly, you're building a road and you're trying to get from one place to another. That's the goal. And all of the things that you do to make a street, like slow down traffic, uh, have on, have parking, have turning traffic, have you know complexity, intersections, all that, all that becomes like something you don't want. And it's something that traffic engineers try to eliminate as much as they can to keep cars flowing quickly. Engineers are really good at building roads. Streets, on the other hand, as a platform for building wealth, as the, the structure for building a place, uh, really has a different set of, uh, of of not only goals but like mechanisms than than a road. It, it's not about moving traffic. You you maybe can accommodate traffic to a degree, but you don't want that traffic to impair or injure the wealth creation function of that street. If we're going to build a really great place, what you're going to find over time is that automobiles become less and less dominant in that space to the point where a truly great street is going to have just people, right? Like the, the greatest streets in the world, and I just got back from Venice, the greatest streets in the world are streets with just people. And so the, the question becomes, how do we build enough wealth to where that happens? What's the, what's the transition between where we're at today and where we want to get to where this street is such a great place that why would we ever waste any of it on moving traffic through? Yeah. And I think that thinking about streets as wealth generators is actually very important. And it forces us to think about wealth, not just about you know tying it to individuals, but thinking about what makes a wealthy community. My, my colleague, Robert Whitman, often refers to well-designed public space as a value beacon. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And where you see that expressed in numbers are on value per acre maps, right? When you look at a value per acre map of your city, of course, the downtown is where it's going to spike. That's that's pretty much the same for every city. But I think that the real insight comes from when you look at neighborhoods that are outside of the downtown area, especially in neighborhoods where you may have depressed real estate values um, from redlining or for other reasons. When you look at where the great streets are, you often see a small spike in value per acre. And that's been something that has been just very interesting to me because it shows that that having a great street can be some way of helping to sustain value and making these areas more resilient to you know the fluctuations of, of economic condition. So you know, leaning into this notion of cities being human habitat and, you know, this symbiotic relationship between streets and structures, it is important to think about streets as a framework for uh, enabling this kind of collective wealth where streets, of course, are um, a public liability. We we all own them as, as citizens in a city and cities are um, expected to take care of them using tax dollars 
and they can't take care of them using tax dollars without some kind of sustainable revenue stream. You need to make sure that you are not overbuilt on the public side and underbuilt on the private side. So that is an incredibly important, uh, you know, ledger to keep track of when thinking about how to create an economically sustainable city, a city that people can, um, you know, have opportunity and can build their own personal wealth. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, you discuss this, this importance of having excess wealth in communities and how a simple evaluation of assets and liabilities can help to reframe how we think about uh, prosperity. Maybe you can expand a little bit about on that idea, because I think that a lot of cities tend to think about prosperity in terms of GDP or even like theoretical return on investment where, uh, you know, the the return on investment is is measured maybe not just using dollars or you know in, in a way that is not very straightforward you know the concept of wealth is really generally related to individuals so so how can cities kind of start to remeasure their their own wealth in terms of their community right it's a great question and and, and you said you know where we have great streets we see spikes in in wealth and it's actually the way that I approached this was the opposite, where, you know, my good friend Joe Minicosi is creating these productivity maps. And we're going out in the community and like looking like there's this spike of great productivity over here. What's going on? And we would go out and visit. And what we would find is people outside of a vehicle. We would find humans, right? And every place where we would see high levels of productivity are places where the uh, function of the street is shifted from being about moving vehicles to being about accommodating people. Because it's people who make transactions, it's people who buy things, it's people who live in buildings, it's people who, you know, enjoy a neighborhood. And so whenever you, you, you were seeing those spikes, we were coming across this weird species called the human who was like highly correlated with success. I love what your colleague said about, you know, a good street being a beacon for uh, wealth, because it, I think that's a really good way to encapsulate it. When we look at GDP, GDP is the federal government, like the federal way, and, and, and to some extent, the state way to measure transactions in an economy. And uh, we could debate whether this is a good way to measure the size of an economy or the function of an economy or the value of an economy. But what we have decided is that at the national level, success will look like growing GDP. So if GDP is X this year, next year it will be X plus a certain percentage of X. It will be greater. And that is a net good. And I get those theories. I understand that. But okay. At the local level, that's just not true. That just is not true. And it's not true for a couple of fundamental reasons. I think one of the most important ones is it's not how we fund local government. You know, there are some places that have income tax. And in a sense, you can say the more people are paid, the, the, the wealthier the, the collective will be. I find those places to not function as well. Um, there's also a lot of places where sales taxes are dominant. And I, I wrote about this in my first book, you know, the ideal scenario, you have to think of a city as being like the representative of us. So think of the city as like how we collectively work together to do something. What is good for the collective working together 
should also simultaneously be good for an individual. Otherwise, the two are at odds. And in a sales tax system, what is best for the collective working together is if you or me spend way more money than we have and pay lots of local sales tax, and then the local government, our collective, has lots of money. Property tax and land tax-based systems tend to be, I think, the best long-term, like, stable way to grow a local community. Because what happens then is that the more wealth you accumulate, the more wealth I accumulate, the richer we become in our place, the place we're building together, the wealthier like the overall collective becomes. The more tax capacity there is, the more ability for us to do great things there is. And if you go back through the history of cities and you look at the way cities uh, were, were, were formed and taxed, it's a very rare place, like a, like a, you know, an Istanbul where you're sitting in the middle of like two trade routes and you're taxing trade as it comes through, you're basically making wealth off of that. Most places, the way that they taxed or the way that they made their money uh, was to tax the, the value of the land and the productivity of the land in that place. And so there was a, a relationship between the two. I think we've spent a lot of time living in our top-down economy, you know, the post kind of post-war top-down economy, we've almost become, I think, disconnected in our language about what success looks like. This is why you see cities doing, like your city, Kansas City, doing ridiculous tax increment financing type things to generate growth and to generate just literally like how many transactions can we get? even though they don't benefit much from transactions, but do benefit a lot from making neighborhoods wealthier. It's also why you see goofy things like them allowing the one side of Troost Avenue to go bad, the redlined area to go bad, and to not uh, prosper the way that it should or could if it was treated in a more respectful way. That is literally like shooting yourself in the foot. Like it, it just is harming yourself because if that poor minority community became a wealthy minority community, guess what? The entire community, the poor, that neighborhood and the other neighborhoods would have more capacity and would be better off. So as a city, GDP does nothing for you. If everyone in your community is spending all kinds of money and paying all kinds of stuff, you're actually like depleting your wealth and you're not actually like generating more local capacity. If you are making investments that make your properties more valuable, make your citizens more valuable, if you, Abby, are 50% more wealthy next year than this year, what that does is that makes Kansas City a wealthier place that has more capacity to do more stuff. That's what winning looks like at the local level. And streets actually are the mechanism to build wealth and assets. Roads and, and investment in roads only build wealth when they connect you to other places where you can trade and, and have economies that go back and forth. Otherwise, and in our economy today, if you listen to like the Paul Krugmans of the world, building roads is all about transactions. It's all about hiring people, lowering unemployment, buying asphalt, buying steel, keeping steel mills running, keeping concrete plants running and building stuff. And we, you and I know that at the local level, when we build a road, it's not a GDP transaction. It's taking on an eternal commitment to maintain a road. It's obligating the next generation to something. And if you don't build wealth along with that, you're just becoming poorer. 
Yeah, exactly. And so this chapter made me think a lot about how cities approach economic development in general, because it is quite transactional. It's very much centered around structures. How can we take a blighted structure, use tax incentives and other financial tools that are available to us, and apply it to this property. And ideally, this investment in the property will create a ripple effect, and that will promote broader economic development. If streets are a wealth building tool, that means that they can also be an economic development tool, that it's often not looked at that way. We're often looking at it in terms of tax incentives rather than just building better public spaces. So, you know, I think that if if a community is experiencing blight, it, it might be a good first step to look at the character of the street where blight is occurring. Is it a street that is worth investing on? Is it a street that, that you yourself would want to live on? And is it a street that you would be proud of, that you would want to bring visitors to from out of town? And I think if the answer is no, then the next thing that should be considered is what simple tactical changes can be made to improve the character of that streetscape and how can that space prioritize wealth building and people rather than moving traffic let me ask you this because one of the things that i observe in my city is that the neighborhoods that are uh my city is a very poor city (laughs) and and i live in probably the wealthiest neighborhood of the city which is in the region, very poor because the wealthy people all live out of town on lakes and stuff like that. So within my community, I live in like the original plat, the older neighborhood. Some of the big historic houses are in this neighborhood. And there's some there's some people with wealth. Like it's a very nice place. But um, if I look around, the streets in the nicest neighborhood are nice streets. They're tree-lined. They got sidewalks. They're a little bit narrow. Traffic's a little slower. You can go to the poorer neighborhoods and we have, I think by, by gradations, we have the north side of Brainerd is, is wealthier than the northeast, which is poorer. And then the southeast is very poor. If you go to the southeast part of Brainerd, it's not that the roads are, the streets are in disrepair, but their design is just so grotesque. They're exceptionally wide. They lack sidewalks. They lack street trees. It's almost as if the design is 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 anti-wealth building. And I wonder if you see the same kind of things in Kansas City where there's a correlation between nice streets and affluent people, where the affluent people came first and the nice street later. And if this tells us something about the way that we treat neighborhoods of poor people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That is absolutely a pattern in Kansas City where, you know, the parts of the city where you're going to have the most affluent people, those are the parts of the city that have the best streets and the best infrastructure. I think it's important to bring up um, something that that has has come up in a lot of conversations that I've had. and, And you touch on it a little bit in the book, and it's when you talk about the importance of applying improvements to a broad area and trying to avoid having, you know, pockets of improvement that build wealth and then areas of stagnation all around it. And I think that's an important insight because you sometimes get a lot of pushback in trying to improve streets. You hear you hear this a lot in in neighborhoods that 
you know, may have a strode running through it and people come in and the city wants to improve it and make it nicer and people get really concerned that it's going to drive up property values and cause displacement and gentrification. And when I hear that, I actually blame the fact that great streets are in such scarce supply that turning a strode into a great street can create so much angst from people living in the area. And, you know, I don't know how you undo that, but it is something that comes up. How should cities think about how neighborhood streets are improved so that they can maintain some some stability um, for residents to know that their their properties will not drastically go up like uh, and and be equal to the the most wealthy areas of town while still improving the quality and character of public spaces. In chapter five, I talk about this concept of the street design team. And we actually did a, a locomotive session earlier this year on this too, because um, it, it's it's one of these, again, I'm going to use the word subversive. It's one of these deeply subversive kind of concepts, but it's one that any city can do right now and it's very effective. And the idea of the street design team is that anytime we're dealing with a, a street project or even just a street without a project, we're just looking at the street and trying to decide like what comes next, what's the next iteration of this. There's a certain mechanical way to approach it that we use today where we give it to an engineer. An engineer looks at the street through their lens, with their criteria, uh, through their value structure. And you wind up with something that at the end of the day meets the speed and volume uh, priorities of the engineer with the safety and cost priorities of the general public being uh, an afterthought or something we might accommodate to some degree, but but so long as it doesn't impact the, the speed and mobility priority we have. A street design team is a team that includes an engineer, so includes like a technical professional who understands, um, you know, the, the technical side of street design, but it also includes all the other kind of people who would have something to say on street design. For instance, uh, you know, yes, a city planner, uh, maybe a city parks person, someone who understands tree, trees and, and, and vegetation. It would certainly include economic development people and people who understood like the vibe of the neighborhood and where it was going from an economic standpoint. It would include people who understood the zoning regulations and the zoning rules. And it would also include people who uh, just implicitly understood the neighborhood. I, I use the example in the book of, you know, a neighborhood as someone with a, a vision impairment. I would design a street in a neighborhood with someone with a vision impairment differently than I would if that street did not have that. And it's not because all streets shouldn't be accessible to people with vision impairments, but because when we have a very specific case in a very intimate place, let's 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 acknowledge that. Let's deal with that. Let's let's you know uh, make that part of our design process. the The idea of the street design team is to get away from the process of we give the project to the engineer, the engineer builds it according to their own values and priorities, and then allows everyone else to comment. And then to one degree or another, ignores or incorporates those comments. And instead starts with the values of the neighborhood, the priorities of the people that are there, and then also uh, accommodates the design considerations and the professional technical considerations of a broad design team. That's a very different way of approaching street design. 
it's one that is going to give us uh, a longer process, a more complex process, but a process that at the end of the day will respond to people that are there while also having, you know, kind of the broader needs of the community uh, represented as well. I'm not going to pretend that this is a, an approach that, you know, won't improve the value of the streets and lead to gentrification. I think that actually is a, another conversation about how we handle housing and how we handle incremental development and how we basically financially let the steam off of a, a fast-growing neighborhood. Because ultimately, what we want with our street investments is we want to grow the wealth of our neighborhoods. We want to grow the wealth of our places. So if we're not making investments that improve people's property values, we're making the wrong investments. We're not, we're not doing it right. I think the question becomes when you people improve their property values, who does that, who accrues that wealth? Is it the person who's living there now with the added capacity to do innovative things with their property? Or is it them being priced out and having outside investors come in, dislocate them, and then completely reshape a neighborhood. And that's a, you know, that's a related conversation, but it, it shouldn't be the one that says, well, let's build crappy streets then so that, you know, nothing ever gets <laughs> too nice where we get kicked out. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I think my favorite part of this chapter was the conversation about having a, a street design team. I think that that would be such a drastically different approach to uh, planning for streets, to building streets, and it would really shift how we think about uh, how we think about designing public space by decentering the engineer and making sure that they are part of the process, but making sure that they are not, uh, you know, the the design of streets are not siloed in a public works department where nobody can really influence the the prioritization of making sure cars can move through your neighborhood as quickly as possible. And so, so that's a really interesting um, discussion that I hope that cities think about in the future and, and consider changing their approaches. Um, it's very different than how, you know, cities will hire a consultant and hold lots of meetings and form focus groups and committees and put out surveys. And I think with that, it might be worth touching on kind of the difference between the strong towns approach and um, the complete streets approach. You provide a distinction between the two approaches. And I want you to expand on that a little bit and talk about how they differ and also how they are similar. Let's be generous to start off with, right? Because I, I do think that the complete streets, and I, I try to say this in the book, I, I think the complete streets approach is trying to solve a very real problem and they're trying to solve it in a very pragmatic way. So I, I think complete streets is trying to solve the problem that most of the streets that we have built today are despotic for people outside of a vehicle. Um, they're actually not streets. They function like roads or strodes. They they discount the experience of the human outside of it. They're not trying to build neighborhoods that create wealth. Um, and, and because of that, they do a, a huge disservice to people. They do a huge disservice to neighborhoods. And, and Complete Streets comes in and says, um, in order for the street to be complete, it has to be able to accommodate everyone. And this creates a situation where you know, we, we call it like the Oprah effect. 
Oprah is famous for saying, all right, you know, look under your chair and like open up your envelope. And yes, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car and you get, you know, a vacation and all this. And, and like the complete streets, the Oprah effect is like, you know, you're a car, you get a lane, you're a bus, you get a lane, you're a bike, you get a lane, you're a person walking, you get a lane, like you get a lane, you get, everybody gets a lane. And from a design process, from an, from an engineering perspective, uh, complete streets is great because you don't have to compromise your value system at all. Complete streets uh, give priority to automobiles. And then within that framework, they accommodate everybody else. So we accommodate pedestrians in that. We accommodate people on bikes. We accommodate transit. But we do it in, a, in a, an environment dominated by automobiles. I don't think that most complete streets advocates, like that's their end goal. But the way that it has been incorporated into the design process, what they did that was tactical was they said, we are going to embed this into the design process to get better outcomes. And I think for that, they should be applauded because engineers have wholesale adopted complete streets. They get paid more to do it. So like there's good incentives for them to do it. This is very different though in endpoint from a strong towns approach because while Complete Streets tries to accommodate pedestrians, their name for humans, in an auto-dominated environment, a strong town tries to accommodate automobiles in an environment dominated by people. If we're building a great street, it is human habitat. It is a place for people. And within that environment, in a lot of places, we can also accommodate automobiles, but the automobiles in terms of like a hierarchy of, of importance is going to come below the human in that space, the human walking, the human biking, the human in a wheelchair, the human on rollerblades, uh, you know, the human is going to come uh, above the automobile in a strong town, in a, in a great street. A lot of the street design team, like you said, decenter on the engineer. Uh, we'll ju I'll just say it in the opposite way. It, it centers the design approach on the humans in that human habitat. We accommodate the automobile in the design approach, but the approach is actually centered on that street, the people, the complexity of what's going on there, and, and, and really with an emphasis about how do we get this to the next generation of prosperity. And that's a, that's a different question. Yeah. Well, and you, what I thought was interesting as well is that you use State Street in Springfield, Massachusetts throughout your book as a case study. And it's an important insight that State Street was once a great street. It's now a Strode and it's also a complete street in a lot of ways. So just because a street is a complete street doesn't necessarily mean that it's a great street. It could still be a strode, even if it incorporates, you know, the the bike arrow and the sidewalks and all of the elements that might make somebody think that it's a complete street. It doesn't necessarily mean that that it is a great street or a safe street. Yeah. I want to honor the intentions of the complete street advocates while also saying that I, I think it's time to move beyond that framework, right? I think they have carried the ball a long ways in this conversation. And I think it's time for them to set the ball down and like let let it let a different idea uh, carry it forward because it, it can only bring us so far. And it really I, I give this insight because, you know, a big part of this book is this is the confessions, right? Like I'm 
I'm not putting myself above and beyond the engineering practice. I'm saying I emerge from within this, completely buying into it. And I remember the first time I heard about Complete Streets, it was in the mid-1990s. I was at a conference with uh, some of my colleagues, engineering colleagues, and someone got up and they were the, I just remember them being like the stereotypical planner, which I hadn't gone to planning school at this time. But you know, the the they're non-technical they're talking about all these like ancillary things that engineers don't care about, you know, like all, all the stuff that like you would get in a lifestyle movie or something like that, a lifetime movie. What, what's the channel? Life, the lifetime. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it felt like for me sitting there, it felt like that. It's like, why do I care about this? Like, I only care about doing engineering things, which is like, I got to move these cars and I got to, you know, keep people moving because that's how we build a great America. Um, and so it seemed like really kind of dumb to me. And I remember all of us kind of chuckling about it. Like, okay, we got to listen to this. Like it was a female granola crunching, you know, like hippie person, <laughs> like explain to us why we needed to do all this stuff. And I remember thinking this is really dumb, dumb. And we laughed about it. We joked about it. And I remember like going out to lunch and being, is this a complete street? Ha ha ha. I watched my colleagues uh, and I, I'm not going to say I was immune to this. I watched the the conversation about complete streets shift as it became apparent that two things were true. One, we could get a lot more money to build complete streets. Like there was just more money out there to do it. Clients would pay more for it. Uh, the government had greater grant programs for it. Um, there was more money to be had doing it. And, and, and really you were designing more stuff. So of course there was more money to do it, right? Um, engineering contracts are often a percentage of the project cost. And so if you increase the project cost by 20% to make it a complete street, you were going to make 20% more fees. That's a, that's a good deal. Um, the other thing that we recognized was that the complete streets approach didn't actually require us to compromise any of our values. We could still design for automobiles and through traffic and high volumes of through traffic. And we could still focus on speed and volume above all else, mobility, um, and we didn't really have to compromise any of those things in adding on this other stuff to make it a quote unquote complete street. I think that, you know, that was not obviously, I think, the intent of the people who originally advocated for complete streets, but it became like the pragmatic mechanism to get us there. And I think we've just, we've just run the table on it. Like it's done. Like it's, it's over. I, th I think we need to move beyond that mindset because it's, it's not going to get us where we need to be on our streets. Yeah. It's now time for kind of the next approach to how we design local streets. And, you know, it, fortunately we are moving in the right direction, but it's taken generations to get into the situation where our streets have become so degraded in, in our cities, um, it's going to take generations to get out of it. The way that you've outlined it in this book is, is the next iteration of how we do that. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this with me today. We'll get on to talking about um, an article next week, but wanted to take, take this chance to cover a section of your book I can't wait to read the rest of it. It's very good. So thank you. You know, we've had preliminary copies available for a while and it's been fun. Uh, it's always fun to get feedback from people. The first book did really well and we got a lot of good feedback. This one has been crazier. There's more pre-sales by a significant margin. 
there's a lot more momentum in this book than than the last one by a significant margin. And I think, you know, where the Strong Towns book was very foundational and and kind of fundamental, this one feels a lot more universal. And, I, you know, I see it having in a lot ways a longer tail, like, like, you know, more applicability day to day for more people than even the Strong Towns book. So I'm excited to get it out there. I completely agree. I feel like the first book, you know, lines out this way of looking at cities. And this book gives you one of probably many things you can do to, you know, not solve the problem, but try to undo the problems that we face in our cities. And so transportation is a huge part of that. And so I, I applaud you for writing this book. It's very good. And hopefully I'll be able to get through the rest of it this weekend. So that's all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. So Chuck, what has been on your radar? Um, I've actually been delving into this book um, called The Russian Revolution by Richard Pipes. It's a little bit older and I've, I've seen some like critique about the fact that he's he's not the most unbiased of author, but he's a historian. So, I mean, they all have their own perspective. Um, but it has been just deeply fascinating. The, the whole Russian revolution where you go from a czar to um, this kind of quasi-democratic uh, system to Bolshevism in this very short period of time with really dramatic levels of, of change it's just a fascinating, fascinating story. I'm about two thirds of the way through it. And I just, I, I feel this urge to like go back to it all the time because it's, it's really a compelling book. Chris Arnotti wrote the book uh, Dignity, uh, just mentioned on Twitter that he had just finished it and he thought it was really good. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if Chris is reading this, I'm going to try it. And uh, wow, really good. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And now that I'm traveling a little bit more, I wind up more time in airports and, and waiting on airplanes and things like that. So I've been delving through it and it's it's great. It's a really good book. It must be good to be back to the travel lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I'm during COVID, I did what a lot of people did, which was gain a little weight. And I've this year been really diligent about losing it. In fact, I've lost about 15 pounds this year, which has felt very good. And in one week on the road, I gained back like three. And so I'm like, okay, no, like I can't. There's a certain um, there's a certain tension when you're on the road between people when you're in their city wanting to treat it like it's a party because like Chuck is here for one day. Let's go out to eat. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And then I've got to actually like go on to the next city or go home and be like a coherent person. So if I if I if I treat it like a four day party, I'm just like a worthless human being at the end. And so there's a certain like discipline you have to develop when you're traveling, and it's going to take me like I'm recognizing that I've got to get back in the good habits of it. So <laughs> so when you come to town, we will not uh, feed you barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if we do, note. if we do barbecue, I'm going to have to do like lean and modest volumes of it. So. Yeah. 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 I, I've heard <laughs> that barbecue restaurants have salads on their mm, menu, but I yeah. don't know if a lot of people get them. <laughs> well, I am a notoriously not good eater anyway. So I've dealt with this by having lots of exercise and um, 
you know, uh, watching my, my portions. And, uh, when you travel, it's hard to do both of those at times. So. Yes. Try to walk as much as possible and portion control is everything. Definitely. Well, I, I've actually been spending a lot of time kind of learning about the history of Missouri. I'm, I'm right now working with two small towns in Missouri in the same county, about a little under an hour away from Kansas City. So I've been spending a lot of time just like learning the history of that part of Missouri. There's a North lot that south? I didn't. Uh, south of Kansas City. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and so there's, there's a lot that I've realized that I, that I don't know about Missouri, <laughs> just the history of it and the history of settlement in this part of the country and how the Civil War impacted different cities and how small towns were impacted by the emphasis on railways and emphasis on highways and how that's kind of affected the, the development pattern of these places. You know, we often focus on mid-sized cities but when you're looking at small towns, they had a, kind of a unique reaction to the era after World War II, which has been interesting. And I've also been spending quite a bit of time just kind of driving and walking around these places, which I really enjoy. It's like my favorite thing to explore a new city and just kind of walk around and look at the infrastructure and the sidewalks. People probably think it's kind of weird there's somebody walking around by themselves taking pictures <laughs> of you know of how curb cuts work and what streets look like and everything like that but I really enjoy it just kind of listening to bluegrass music and walking around a town is a lot of fun right. so right. I've been enjoying that Missouri is I mean what's the motto there the crossroads state or something like that I can't remember um but, um, I know, think it's the show me state. The show me state. Okay. You 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 have this like jumping off point in the history of America and westward expansion of, you know, the eastward settlements. Missouri was this like jumping off point. And so it's it's this interesting mix of like people who transited through and then people who stayed. And it's also far enough north and far enough south where it was this like centerpiece of conflict in the whole like political uh, resolution of the slavery issue that that you know ended us in the civil war it's almost like every division or every opportunity of a certain period of time in america ran through missouri in this way that is is reflected in st louis and reflected in kansas city i mean the the differences between those two cities is amazing and it really has to do with like the time that they were preeminent and the time that they they kind of peaked. Yeah, the whole state is is utterly fascinating. Just not Fort Leonard Wood. Fort Leonard Wood is a wretched, horrible place that I hope <laughs> I never go back to. But everything else is very interesting to me. I, I I think it's a great state. I I don't think I've ever heard of Fort Leonard Wood. Really? So I did a summer at Fort Leonard Wood, which is south um, west of. Uh, of St. Louis, you know, they pick military bases because it's like the cheapest, worst land that nobody wants to do anything on. So you might as well put a military base there and like make troops do push-ups and like blow things up and stuff like that. So <laughs> lots of clay and chiggers and humidity. And for a guy from Minnesota, those three things were not cool. Yeah. But that I sounds survived. like Missouri though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that that should be our state motto. <laughs> Chiggers, uh, 
clay humidity. and humidity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, 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 there's a lots of things I love about Missouri, but, um, chiggers, humidity and clay are not three. The clay thing is interesting to me, but I'll, was, I'll let you have it. Well, I'm, so I'm from a glacial outwash state. So I live like atop of like a mile of gravel. So we have this nice sand and I'm an engineer, so I maybe note these more than it, but when rain falls, it drains in very nicely. When rain falls in Missouri, it's clay. And so it just like runs to the lowest spot. And if that happens to be where your bivouac tent is, you're now sleeping in six inches of rain and, and, uh, not cool. Not, not cool at all. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you are a sand people and we are a clay people. That actually makes a lot of sense though, because when you get all the way down to Arkansas, that's why the mountain bike trails are so, so much better because the, the ground is very sticky. So your tires, um, kind of stick to everything, which is nice. That's the best that's that's my favorite trail to ride on is one that is has a lot of like clay in the dirt. Sure. And your your state has a lot of beautiful topography. I mean, the, the Ozark Mountains mm-hmm. are gorgeous. I mean, they're just like amazing. Um, my state is flat as a pancake, you know, because it was yeah. this glacial outwash. So it's very flat. Yeah. Where, where I grew up actually outside of St. Louis was on the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. So growing up... I, I was really used to just really hilly, deeply forested areas. Um, and you know, I, I didn't, didn't really occur to me how beautiful it was until I've grown up and I, I go visit my parents and I'm, I'm always amazed at how pretty it is out there. Yeah. 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 Except for the chiggers, humidity and clay. And clay, yes. Unless <laughs> unless you're mountain biking, then it's pretty pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, Chuck. Thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. It's fun being out on the road, and I know that you're on the calendar, so uh, that makes it extra special. Sweet. Well, hopefully, we'll see you soon. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town and a great street. Thanks, Chuck. Uh-huh. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do. I'm about to get out. Hit the town tonight. Oh, I'm about to get down tonight. Hit the town tonight. Oh, I'm about to get down.